Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Today's episode of the Serial Dynasty is brought to you in part by Audible.com. Audible is offering for Serial Dynasty listeners to download a free audiobook. To download your free audiobook, go to audibletrial.com slash Serial Dynasty. This show is also sponsored in part by listeners like you. Your donations are a large part of what makes this show happen. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode number six of the Serial Dynasty. This has been a very busy week with a lot of new information. The Undisclosed Podcast dropped their episode for Addendum on Monday, and that episode contained a lot of information regarding the polygraph tests that were administered to Mr. S. And we'll get into that as we move forward with the show today. Um, I've also had a lot of emails and a lot of listeners doing a lot of work helping to dig up more information after our last week's call to action truly believe we're getting one step closer to finding out who killed Heyman Lee. Now along those lines, I want to start the show today by reading an email from listener Kate Kelly. Kate says, Hi Bob. Firstly, thanks for your podcast. I've listened since the first one dropped and I really enjoy hearing different theories from people all over the world as well as your interviews. I've had at least one theory for every episode of Serial, Undisclosed, and Serial Dynasty. Often more than one, as each of the episodes have unfolded, so I won't share my current theory as it's likely to change tomorrow, post the undisclosed addendum dropping. I just have a comment regarding the focus of all the podcasts. The whodunit. Is Jay lying? Clearly yes. How was Jen involved? What's Don's story? Etc. I think we are all forgetting about the most important factor. That this is the real story of a young girl who was murdered in her body dump before her life began. I'm around the same age Hay would be now had she lived, and I think of my life between finishing high school and now. Moving out of home, first job, career, traveling the world, living for the last six years in London, I'm from Melbourne, Australia, and most importantly the birth of my first baby, my beautiful son Alexander in October last year. That she missed out on all of those types of events, or whatever path she had chosen in her life. It's utterly tragic would be a great tribute if you could dedicate some words and time in your podcast to allow the listeners to reflect on what this is all really about. Justice for Hay. It doesn't matter who did it, who was involved and why. Well, it does of course, but I hope you know what I mean by that. What matters is that the truth finally comes out, so her family can have some peace, if that's possible. This is in no way criticism of any of the podcasts. I literally count down the minutes to hear them, and who wouldn't want a friend and an advocate like Rabia and millions of people invested in the outcome of your case if you were Adnan? Keep up the great work, Kate. Thank you, Kate, for that email. Um, I was thinking a lot about that over the last several weeks, as it really seems that the focus and the purpose of this podcast has shifted since day one when I released the first episode asking for your theories. It really almost started out as entertainment, just a way for us to get our ideas out there, just to help feed our obsessions. But as I began this podcast and I've moved forward and I've started really looking into these people and into this case, i become more and more determined by the day, by the hour. This isn't about entertainment. This isn't about feeding our obsession. I want to tell you right now, listeners, and hopefully you feel the same way that I do. I am on a mission. And at first the mission was free Adnan. But I've moved past that mission at this point. It's about more than freeing Adnan. I believe if by any chance we are able to get Adnan back into a court for a new trial, we have uncovered enough evidence to acquit him and get him out of prison. So it's not that I don't care about Adnan getting released. I do, very much. I think about Adnan as a real person. Someone not far from my age that has spent his entire adult life in prison, 
Much like Kate said, I've thought a lot about all of the experiences I've had in my life since 1999. So many things that he's missed. And it pains me to think that he's sitting in prison and he has been this whole time. Especially now that I've seen so much and uncovered so much and heard all of the things that you all have uncovered. And I just know in my heart of heart that he didn't do this. And it's so sad. But like I said, I think that we've uncovered enough to prove that Adnan is innocent of this crime. And the Undisclosed podcast team is continuing to pile it on. And they need to keep doing that. That's their job. That's their duty. That's their purpose. Really, the purpose of Serial Dynasty has kind of shifted from there, at least in my mind. At this point, I am bound and determined to solve the murder of who killed Heyman Lee on January 13, 1999. But I can't do it alone. That's why this podcast is more than entertainment. It's more than a show. It's a movement. It's a movement of what is now tens of thousands of people that I hope before too long will be hundreds of thousands of people all working together towards the same goal. Finding the killer of Heyman Lee. So what I want to do today is take a moment and break down our suspects. What we know and what we don't know of each of the people that have been named as suspects in emails that I've received over the last several weeks. I have a lot of emails to read. I have even more emails that I don't have time to read. But in this episode of The Serial Dynasty, we're going to walk through each and every one of the suspects. But before we begin down our journey of presenting the evidence that we have for each of the suspects, I want to read one more email from someone named Amy Watkins. Amy writes, Bob, thank you for the podcast. A comment you made at the first episode has stuck with me. It was about your investigation methods. If I recall correctly, you said that you develop a theory and then look for evidence that disproves that theory. If you find it, check that theory off the list, move to the next. I know I'm totally inexperienced in this area, but doesn't that mean that the potential outcome is limited by your imagination? Wouldn't it make sense to take all of the currently verified facts that we know surrounding Hayes' disappearance and death lay them out, and see where the holes are and where those facts point. In other words, developing the theory after examining the evidence, rather than developing a theory and then looking at the evidence through those glasses. That seems to me what may have happened to the detectives in this case, to the extreme that they ignored any evidence that didn't fit their theory. Amy, I want to thank you for sending this because it gives me an opportunity to kind of explain some of this to the rest of the listeners. What I said in episode one regarding trying to disprove my theory and checking it off the list was correct, but the first part of the investigation method is to develop the evidence, and I may have neglected to make that clear in the first episode, so just to clear that up, the way I perform an investigation, and in my opinion the way investigation should be performed, is first you gather physical evidence. You look at evidence, you speak to witnesses, all through unbiased eyes. You don't lead witnesses, you try to have no preconceived notions, and you let the evidence paint a picture for you. Then we develop the theory and begin to try to disprove the theory. What you try to do is try to find if there are any holes in your theory, any evidence that could pick it apart. A solid theory and a solid investigation, in my opinion, should be infallible, especially when you're dealing with a person's life. If I have a theory that someone committed a crime and I find even one piece of evidence that would disprove that, then what it has done is, in fact, disprove it. Everything has to work. There can't be any anomalies. There may end up being some what-ifs, but if you find evidence that shows that your theory could not happen, it's time to move on to the next theory. Now moving on with Amy's email. She says, I also wanted you to know that I think your podcast, Serial and Undisclosed, are not in fact using real-life tragedy to entertain the masses. I think this crowdsourcing, crime-solving phenomenon is pretty cool, actually. People are involved because they want to find out the truth. As seen with the Boston Bombers, people like the Reddit folks covered much more ground than the investigators would have ever been able to do. Utilizing people's different skills and points of view seems like it can cancel out bias in cases such as Adnan's. Although I don't know how persuasive this type of bias slash cover-up type activity goes in the real world. I see this case bringing a lot of different people together and feeling like maybe they can make a difference in the case. 
Think of the concept of getting a fresh pair of eyes to find something that has been missed and multiply it by hundreds of thousands and more. How is that bad? And a quick last question from Colin's interview, where you discuss the topic of leading questions. Didn't Gutierrez use that style of questioning as well, where Jay only had to respond yes or no to her statements? Anyway, great job sorting through all the facts and emails. All of the conflicting hearsay could drive one nuts. That's probably why I'm not an investigator. Winky face. Thanks, Amy Watkins. And yes, Amy, Gutierrez did use that style of interrogating on the witness stand, and that's actually very common in court. Uh, as someone who spent a lot of time as an expert witness on the witness stand, uh, it's actually one of the most frustrating parts about being a witness in court is the lawyers control what you can and cannot say. So they'll ask you questions and only allow you to give a yes or no answer, when a lot of the time a yes or no answer is not giving the full picture of what happened. They're trying to paint the picture that matches their case. The difference between that and a police investigation is you have a lawyer as well. So when that attorney is done asking you those yes or no questions, when it's your attorney's turn to question you, they will ask the follow-up questions to allow you to explain yourself. And that's what doesn't happen in the police interviews. In the police interviews, you're still just trying to gather information. There's a difference. When you're being investigated by the police, they're trying to gather evidence and figure out what happened. Once you're in court, there's two opposing sides that think that they already know what happened and they're trying to prove their case. And so you have that battle back and forth from lawyer to lawyer to lawyer to lawyer. So that's where the difference comes in between a lawyer's interrogation and a detective's interrogation. Thanks again, Amy, for the email. Now moving forward, who killed Heyman Lee? Our first suspect, Adnan Syed. Hey Bob, I think I'm one of the few people who listens to Serial and thinks he did it. I think Hay broke up with Adnan, and when he realized they weren't getting back together, he flipped. There's actually a new trend of this with teenage boys killing their ex-girlfriends after breakups. And I saw a 48-hour special on Discovery ID about a case that sounded just like Adnan's. However, I listened to the last episode on Undisclosed, and it really has me questioning this theory. Considering all of the evidence of people's timelines or the wrong day has me wondering more about people's motives. I haven't listened to your latest episode, but no one seems to suggest that Jay was an informant. That's why he has never been to jail, and he to this day will hold on to this lie. Police and the DA's office will go to great lengths to protect them and can have a relationship for many years. I'm still not convinced about Adnan's innocence, but it definitely has moved my needle. I like your show because I like to hear what other people think about things that I don't always agree with. Plus, you have me looking at this from a different angle. What is everyone's motive? Also, the serial killer slash random person could still be in play. Sorry for the long email. You probably get many of these. I just wanted to give a different perspective to what I've been hearing you talk about. Still on the fence, Lauren. Thank you, Lauren, for sending that email in. Uh, one thing I do want to point out at this point, uh, Lauren mentioned the possibility of Jay being a criminal informant, and I've been getting a lot of emails regarding Kevin Urick and the request I made last week for some listeners to help me start doing some research. I did just want to touch on the fact that I do have a few listeners that are digging deeply into the Kevin Urick caseload. We've been emailing back and forth, and we're starting to compile a list that we can start to go through. So as we move forward with these next couple of episodes, you won't hear me speak much about Kevin Urich. It's not that I've let that go or forgotten about it. It's just we have a mountain of research to do, and we're working on it. So once I have some facts, we'll be discussing them here again on the show. So what do we know about Adnan? We know that Adnan was convicted of the murder of Heyman Lee and is currently sitting in prison. We know that he was convicted based solely on the testimony of Jay Wilds, and the fact that that testimony was corroborated by cell phone records. That's really it. As we move forward with today's show, you're going to hear a lot of evidence, some circumstantial, some concrete, for several other suspects. What I want you to do as we move on with the show is I want you to keep a mental balance of how much actual facts and evidence we have for each one of these suspects that we're going to walk through today and compare them to the amount of evidence that we have against Adnan. So the state's case, which is all we have to go on, is that Adnan got a ride from Hay after school. He strangled her in the parking lot of Best Buy, put her in the trunk, called Jade Wilds to come give him a ride, 
They dropped her car off at a park and ride, drove around for a few hours, smoked weed, saw a few people. He was dropped off late to track practice by Jay, who then later picked him up, where they went to Jay's friend Christie's house. Adnan got a call from the police. They left her house. They went back to pick up her car, took her car to Lincoln Park, and buried her. So that's what we have on the guilty side of Adnan Syed, is that testimony and the corroboration of that testimony based on cell phone records. Now what evidence do we have on the contrary of that? Well, several things. Number one, the accounts of the witnesses after school are a little fuzzy, as Undisclosed has pointed out over the last several weeks. People say they heard Hay say this, she said that, she was going there, but as it turns out, most of those witnesses were confused, they were talking about other days, so we're not left with a lot of concrete evidence as to what went down after school. What we do know is there's not a single witness that said they saw Adnan Syed get into her car and leave that school with her that day. That we know. Now there's still the question of what time did Hay leave the school. My personal opinion is that she left the school somewhere between 2.30 and 2.45, possibly even as close as 3 o'clock. My reason for that is based loosely on the testimony of Inez Butler Hendricks. Why Inez and not all the other witnesses, Debbie, Krista, Becky, etc.? It's simply for this reason. Inez was the only adult on that list. She was a teacher. Now you'll remember, Inez's testimony at trial was that Hayes stopped by her snack stand between 2.15 and 2.20. She didn't pay for her snacks. She left and she said that's okay because at the second trial, Inez says, She has to be back for that 6 o'clock wrestling match. So she wasn't worried about her not paying. Now the trial before that, she said same thing, 2.15, 2.20. But it was okay that she didn't pay for her snacks because she'd be back at 3.45 for the wrestling meet. So it's easy to say Inez's statements can be ignored. She obviously had the wrong day because she thought there was a wrestling meet and we know for a fact that there was not a wrestling meet on that day. But these statements were given after quite a bit of confirmation bias. By this point, she had talked to several detectives. She had no doubt talked to the prosecutor. She had been fed a lot of information. She had seen the news. She had read the paper. She had heard people talking. And her testimony had shifted to match what the detectives and the prosecutor wanted her to say. But I want to go back to her first statement to the police. The first time the police spoke to her, before they knew she was dead, before they found the body, she told the police that they had stopped by her snack stand that day after school and that she was upset. She had said she wanted to call her dad, and she also said she was sure there was not a wrestling meet that day. She paid for her snacks, and she left. And she said this occurred around 2.30 p.m. The police asked her if it could have possibly been closer to 2.15, and she said absolutely not because of the bus loop. It had to have been at least 2.25 or after. The second time she was interviewed by police, she stated about 2.30, she saw hay, she left her car running, she paid for her snacks, and she left. Again, no wrestling meet. Again, they asked if it could have been closer to 2.15. Again, she says no because of the bus loop. It had to have been at least 2.25 or later. Now, admittedly, the time when Hay left school is certainly still up for debate. But given the bus loop, I'm confident in saying it was not before 2.25. It had to have been somewhere in the window between 2.30 and 3 o'clock. She had to pick up her cousin at school at the Campfield Early Learning Center at 3.15. I did quite a bit of research this week on maps and routes. And with Hayes' most likely route to the learning center, that trip would take about nine minutes. So she couldn't have left after three or much after three. Now back to Adnan. We have the affidavit from Asia McLean that swears that Adnan was in the library after school until at least 2.40. Now compare that to the fact that many of the witnesses said Hay had somewhere she had to be that day and she rushed out of there. Most likely Hay's gone at that time or is leaving very soon after that. Now, we also know that Adnan had track practice at 3.30. If you look at an aerial photo of Woodlawn High School, you'll see the reason why Adnan asked Hay for a ride. That question has come up a lot. Why did he ask her for a ride on a regular basis when he had his own car? And the answer to it lies in that aerial photo. And Colin Miller touched on it in my last episode when I interviewed him. Not only was the track quite some distance away from the high school, there was also no road down to it and there was no parking near it. So the reason that Adnan would get a ride from Hay down to track practice was, on her way to pick up her cousin, she could drop him off on the street right at the track, and he wouldn't have to walk down there. Now there's still some question about did track practice start at 3.30 or did track practice start at 4 o'clock. 
I'm 100% convinced it started at 3.30. Hay picks her cousin up at 3.15 every day. Why would she be dropping Adnan off to track practice every day at 3 o'clock for a 4 o'clock practice? It just doesn't make any sense. Also, when we examine Adnan's phone record on the day of the murder, he called to check his voicemail at 5.14 p.m. That means track practice was over by 5.14. Now, if Adnan had called Jay for a ride to pick him up after track practice, the incoming call before that is at 4.58 p.m. So that would mean right about 5 o'clock, track practice is over. He calls Jay. 15 minutes later, Jay gets there to pick him up. As soon as he gets his phone, he checks his voicemail. Now, I guess I can't speak in 100% surety for all high school sports, but as a person who played a lot of high school sports, in no sport that I ever participated in did we have a practice that lasted only one hour. Meaning if track practice started at 4, it was done by 4.58, and Adnan was already checking his voicemail at 5.14. So for these reasons, I believe track practice started at 3.30. We also have the testimony of the track coach, who states that he's sure that Adnan was at track that day. He couldn't be sure of the day, but because of the weather, he knew it was that warm day, which could only have been January 13th. He knew Adnan was there. He was on time. He spoke to him on the track. They discussed the prayers he was leading at the mosque. And this is also corroborated by Adnan's own statements. So where was Adnan that day? I believe Adnan got out of school. He didn't get that ride from Hay. He went to the library. After the library, he walked down to track practice. He was at track practice until 5 o'clock. Jay picked him up. They spent a few hours in the afternoon getting some food, smoking some weed, until he drops Jay off and he goes to the mosque. After the mosque, he makes a few phone calls and he goes home for the night. The last call he makes on his call log is at 10.30 p.m. for 1 minute and 44 seconds to someone named Ann. So in a nutshell, that's what we know about Adnan. We have Jay's chronology that was created after he saw the cell records and tower locations and was coached by police, or we have Adnan's testimony and witness statements, which contradict most, if not all, of Jay's story. If I'm the investigator in this case, I cross Adnan off the list, long before I began to think of any make-believe chronology. Next up, our serial killer, or killers. There seems to be a lot of confusion regarding Roy Davis. I've had several people tweet me and email me, and I've seen it all over Twitter, speaking about Roy Davis being the serial killer that was mentioned in the podcast Serial. The fact is that Roy Davis wasn't mentioned in Serial. There was a serial killer, and his name was Ronald Lee Moore. I caught, actually just recently, today even, that people were confusing these two, thinking that they were the same person, when several questions kept coming up about whether Roy Davis killed himself in prison. And if you Google that, there's all kinds of articles and speculations about whether he did, whether he didn't. And I was unable to fact check any of that. All I can find is a bunch of rumors. And then it finally occurred to me, they're thinking about Ronald Lee Moore. Ronald Lee Moore is the serial killer that Deidre Enright and the Innocence Project is looking into as the possible suspect. So what do we know about Ronald Lee Moore? Ronald Lee Moore was a serial killer. He was the one that was mistakenly released from prison 10 days prior to Hay's death. He was only out for a short period of time before he was locked back up again. He was later linked back to another murder through DNA evidence. Ronald Lee Moore committed suicide in prison in 2012. The only concrete facts that I have about Ronald Lee Moore was simply what I just explained to you. We know that he was out of prison. We know that he was a serial killer. We know that his M.O. was young women, typically he raped and strangled, and he got locked up later and is now dead. Now it's my understanding that Deidre and her team are still working on this angle among others, and I believe from some teasers we've had in Undisclosed that Deidre and her team are going to make an appearance on Undisclosed at some point in time, but I do not know that for sure. Next up, Roy Davis. Roy Davis is the man that was convicted of killing Jada Lambert, the 18-year-old Woodlawn student that was killed nine months before Heyman Lee was murdered. He was locked up on a burglary charge when he was identified as the murderer of Jada Lambert through DNA testing. A compelling fact about Roy Davis is the fact that his home, from what I've read, was located between Woodlawn High School 
in the Campfield Early Learning Center where Heyman Lee's cousin was. And I wish I had a lot more information to give you other than that, but that's all I have concrete right now. But it is certainly very compelling that this is a man who we know killed an 18-year-old Woodlawn girl by strangulation just nine months earlier. And he lives what sounds like is pretty close to the route that Heyman Lee would take on her way to pick up her cousin. Both of these men, Roy Davis and Ronald Lee Moore, could certainly be the killer. But since they weren't interviewed back in 1999, I think that the only way that we're going to find out if one of them was the murderer is to get the DNA tested from the crime scene. The medical examiner's report says there was two hairs on Heyman Lee's body in the grave. The hairs were tested against Hay, and they were tested against Adnan. They weren't tested against anyone else. There was the brandy bottle right near the grave with epithelial cells that were never tested. There was the rope next to the grave. If Hay was killed by strangulation using that rope, and the killer wasn't wearing gloves, there would certainly be skin cells containing DNA on that rope. It's infuriating to think back to the fact that the police in 1999 had all of this evidence and didn't bother to test any of it because it didn't fit their suspect at non. I don't know how to do it, but somehow we the people need to make a movement. We need to put pressure on the state and we need to get those items tested, not just to exonerate Adnan Syed, but to find out who murdered Heyman Lee. Oh, and just one more thing about Roy Davis. In 1996, Roy Davis was arrested on a marijuana charge. Why is that important? Because the difficult part about thinking about any of these suspects, for me, is trying to figure out how do they connect with Jay. I still don't believe Jay's story was completely made up by the police. I believe he was absolutely, at the very least, involved in this crime, and he followed along with the police to get himself out of trouble. And not to pin it on Adnan, but just to pin it on anybody but himself. So where's the connection? Jay admits that he's a pot dealer. That he sells marijuana. Roy Davis is a known pot user. So with just this little bit of evidence that we have, just those few facts, would certainly lead me to believe that Roy Davis is one of our prime suspects at this point. Now it's important to note at this point, that the police did not know that Roy Davis killed Jada Lambert in 1999. He wasn't even a suspect. They found out that he killed when that DNA test was done. I believe it was three years later. So we do have to kind of give the police department a pass on that. It's not like they knew Roy Davis killed Jada Lambert and didn't even consider him as a suspect. They didn't even know who Roy Davis was at that point. Next up, Mr. S. There's a lot of controversy about Mr. S. There's a lot of thoughts and theories about him, and there's a lot of confusion about him. Last week's undisclosed episode 4 addendum, where they discussed the polygraph testing of Mr. S, left even more questions. Or did it leave us answers? If you take those polygraph tests at face value, what do they mean? Mr. S failed the polygraph tests when he was asked if he knew who had killed her, when he was asked if he had prior knowledge of her body being there, when he was asked if anybody led him there to find the body. In his second polygraph, he was asked specific questions about the cause of death. He passed that one. He didn't know anything about the cause of death. So you can look at the fact that those were bad tests or they were done improperly, or you can just take them at face value. And what do they mean at face value? It means that Mr. S. didn't murder Hay, but he did have prior knowledge about how she got there, which could also possibly mean he had prior knowledge about who killed her, and possibly still does have that knowledge. I personally don't believe that Mr. S. stepped out of his car to take a leak and stumbled across Hay's body. I believe he knew ahead of time that her body was there and he went out looking for it. How or why he got that information, all we can do is speculate at this point. I personally do not believe that Mr. S. killed Heyman Lee. If for no other reason than if he killed her and concealed her body way back in the woods and no one had found it for almost a month, why would he then go grab the cops and point them in the direction of the body? That just makes no sense to me. So how did he find out where it was? Two or three episodes ago, I had an email from a listener who made the link between Mr. S.'s, um, let's say, unorthodox sexual tendencies and the porn store where Jay Wilds worked. So we don't know for sure, but it's certainly possible Mr. S. was a patron of the porn store where Jay Wilds worked 
and while at the porn store, overheard discussion or discuss with Jay where the body was, and maybe that's the reason why he went out to get it. So I'm going to put Mr. S in the certainly still at this point, 15 years later, person of interest category and look into him further. Up next, Don. I want to begin our discussion on Don with an email from our friend Mary Armstrong. Her subject line is 28 days, better than the movie. Mary says, hi Bob, great interview with Colin Miller. While Skype was not your friend, we still are. I just wanted to ask you and the rest of the audience if they had the same reaction I did to 28 Days. Totally absorbing. I listened to it over and over again, which is generally something I haven't done too much. I liked listening to them talk to each other rather than just the straight presentation. Just gripping. What do you think? I know you have a ton of feedback, so thanks so much for reading. You are doing an awesome job. P.S. Don is still my guy. Mary. Thank you again, Mary, for another great email. And yes, I had sort of the same reaction to the 28 days. I mean, granted, I've listened to all of the podcasts over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, I spent today, while I was at work, all day literally listening to all 12 episodes of Serial while I was working. Uh, And I like to do that about every couple of weeks uh, as we get new information to go back and listen to Serial again, having the facts that we have now. In 28 days, I think I listened to four times on Tuesday last week. So Mary, since day one, has always said Don is her guy, and she still believes that he is. Thank you again, Mary, for that one. So what do we know about Don? I mean, what do we know about Don? Sadly, not a whole lot. And like many things, it's hard to know a whole lot 15 years later when the police never tried to find out a whole lot and never documented a whole lot about Don. I want to read another email from Sherry Zuccarelli. Bob, thanks for Serial Dynasty. I've really enjoyed listening so far. My sister Amy and I have been thinking about the Don angle. In Serial Episode 12, What We Know, Sarah mentions that she talked to Don. Don tells Sarah that he loved Hay and still loves Hay. That doesn't go away. I find that statement odd. Don and Hay dated for 14 days, 16 years ago. Also worth noting... When you interviewed Susan Simpson in Episode 2, Susan pointed out that in the interview notes from the case, Don indicated that he was, quote, not as into the relationship as Hay seemed to be. This completely contradicts what Don told Sarah, and it is worth pointing out. As a matter of comparison, I dated a guy for three and a half years over 20 years ago, was engaged to be married to him, and have no feelings for him whatsoever today. I have felt since I started listening to Serial in the spinoff podcast that Don should have been looked at more closely as a suspect. It is strange that someone in love with Hay would not try to contact her after she disappeared. Don's story of his belief of Hay going to California doesn't add up. If you're in love, you would do more to get in touch with the person that you're in love with. Just seems fishy. My sister and I would love to hear your thoughts. Thanks again for all of your hard work. Sherry Zuccarelli P.S. My name is pronounced Zuccarelli. Thank you, Sherry, for that, and especially thank you for the pronunciation. So what few things do we know about Don? Well, we know that he claims he was working at the Hunt Valley Lens Crafters that day. We know that his mother is his alibi, and that his timesheet was created some eight months later. That could mean nothing. It could mean everything. I do think it's worth pointing out that we don't have a real clear connection between Don and Jay. So I think that to believe that Don committed the murder we have to also believe that Jay had nothing to do with this and he was completely coerced by the police, which is not out of the question. In fact, I might lean a little more towards that direction now than I ever have before after taking the time this week to listen to the This American Life episode, Confessions, with Jim Trainum. Susan had mentioned it when I was interviewing her on the show a few weeks back, and a listener sent me the link to it, which I will post on our Twitter feed today after this episode airs. In that episode, Jim tells a story about how he got a completely false confession without meaning to do so, and didn't realize that it was false until later. So the idea of Jay being completely uninvolved isn't completely out of the question. I will say that I don't believe that's the case at this point. But I think that in order to consider Don our primary suspect, I almost feel like you have to, unless we uncover later how there's a link between Don and Jay. I have one more email about Don. This one's from Rachel. She says, Love the podcast. In the last episode, someone mentioned how police couldn't reach Don till about 1.30 a.m. 
you talked about the burial of Hay being around midnight. Could this maybe explain why Don wasn't available? Sketchy. That is true in the police notes, and I've read them, and the report does say that they were not able to get a hold of Don until 1.30 a.m. on the 14th. So those are the facts that we have. We don't have a firm, rock-solid alibi, as the police said that he did. He says that he's in love with Hay, yet he never tried to contact her again. He says he believes maybe she went off to California. When he had a date with her that night, he gets a call that she's missing, and he never bothers to do so much as send her a page. We also know that he was supposed to have a date with her that night, yet he was unreachable until 1.30 a.m. We also know that the burial of Heyman Lee most likely occurred between 11 p.m. and 1 a.m. Now, there is a lot of evidence to support that, but the Undisclosed podcast is going to be discussing that at length tomorrow in their episode number five, so I'm going to leave that to them, and we'll discuss it next week. Now for our last suspect of the day, Jay. This email is from Beth. Her subject line is, whoever smelt it, dealt it. Beth says, hi, Bob. Love your podcast. I am totally with you that it was Jay and Jen. In my mind, they both behave exactly like people who are guilty. Why was Jen worried about getting an attorney before she talked to the cops? Because she was involved. If I were in high school and cops were knocking on my door and asking me to talk to them, I would have just told them what I knew. Why get an attorney if all you know about the murder is what you've heard from your friend, Jay? Because she's guilty. Why did they not say anything until the body was found? Because they thought they were going to get away with it. I'm sure they had taken those 28 days to plan what they would do if and when the body was found, and so they both tell a few people that it was Adnan and that Jay saw the body so that when they did need a story, they had already planted the seeds. I sort of feel like even the fact that Jay and Jen are the first to give big statements to the cops just shows that whoever smelt it dealt it. Sorry to use the fart saying, but you know what I mean. Jay and Jen were the only ones who had any knowledge of the crime. Jen tells the cops that Hay was strangled. And she knows this because she was there. Jay knows where the car is. Jay talks about what it's like to kill someone with your bare hands. Even though he's saying that it's something Anon told him, I don't buy that. They were Jay's shovels. Jay disposed of his clothes. Even the fact that Jay was thinking about whether or not the Best Buy lot had cameras tells me he did it. Why would he be thinking slash speculating about that if he was innocent? Why does Jay insist that Adnan was late for practice? Because Jay knows when Hay was killed and needs to make sure Adnan is seen as being available during that time. Anyway, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but just my two cents. Thanks for the podcast. It must be a ton of work, and I hope you're enjoying it. Beth. Thank you, Beth, for that email, and I think that you make a lot of good points. Most of the suspects that we have in this case, we don't know a whole lot about. Jay is one of the few that we do. We know that Jay first told the police he had nothing to do with it. We know that then he told police that he did have something to do with it, and that Adnan did it, and that he helped. He gave a timeline. We know that after that, Jay was showed a list of the cell phone records. Then he created a new timeline that better fit the cell phone records. Then we know that police discovered they made some errors on the cell phone records in the tower locations. And we know that they then spoke with Jay about that. They showed him that information. And then Jay created a new timeline that better fit the cell phone records. Well, I have something to say about those cell phone records. Let me walk you through my timeline of Jay Wilds the day he killed Heyman Lee. At 10.45 a.m., Jay receives a call at home from Adnan. We know that Adnan then goes to Jay's house and picks him up, tells him that he needs to go buy a birthday present for his girlfriend. Jay then drops Adnan back off at school and goes about his day. At about noon, Jay opens the glove box of Adnan's car, no doubt just doing some snooping. He finds Adnan's cell phone in there. He knew Adnan had the cell phone because Adnan had just bought it the day before and activated it, and Jay was one of the people that he called to let him know what his new number was. Shortly after that, he makes his first call to his friend Jen Pusateri. He calls her at 12.07, but she doesn't answer. It goes to her voicemail. He drives around running miscellaneous errands for about a half hour, and at 12.41 he calls Jen again. This time they answer, and he speaks with her for about a minute and a half. Now at 2.36 p.m., Jay's doing something. Maybe a drug deal. Maybe cheating on his girlfriend. I don't know what he was doing. But Jen tries to call Jay at 2.36 p.m. We know that Jay was somewhere in the area of the Woodlawn High School, based on the fact that the cell phone tower 
L651 was pinged, which is the one that covers the Woodlawn High School and also the area north of Woodlawn High School, which is on the route to Heyman Lee going to pick up her cousin. About 20 minutes later, Heyman Lee drives by and she sees Adnan's car. She stops to see what's going on and interrupts Jay in the middle of some sort of act. Whether it's cheating on his girlfriend, a drug deal, maybe something going on with Roy Davis, Mr. S, we don't know. But what we do know is that Hay interrupted something. This leads to an argument. This leads to possibly a threat by Hay. Maybe she threatens to tell Stephanie. It leads to a struggle. At about 3 o'clock, Jay wraps his hands around Heyman Lee's throat. He begins strangling her. Now, unlike the 60 to 90 seconds that was left for this act in Serial by Sarah Koenig, we know that medically speaking, it takes 4 to 6 minutes for brain death to occur due to strangulation. So this is a struggle that goes on for 4 or 5 minutes. During this time, Jen tries to call Jay. We know this because we have an incoming call at 3.15 p.m. that appears to go unanswered that ping cell tower L651, the same tower that covers the area around Woodlawn High School and the immediate area on Heyman Lee's route to pick up her cousin. A few minutes after that, the deed is done. Haley is dead. Jay collects himself, and he makes a call to Jen at home. He speaks with her for about 30 seconds. He told her what just happened. He's freaking out. He hangs up the phone and tries to figure out what to do with the body. He decides that for right now, he'll put hay in the back of her trunk. As Jay's struggling to put hay in the back of her trunk, he bumps the phone, and it accidentally dials Adnan's new girl interest, Nisha. The phone rings and rings and rings for 2 minutes and 22 seconds. Jay doesn't notice because he's busy handling the body. When he finally gets the body into the trunk, he notices that the phone was ringing, and he ends the call. We know this happened because we have an outgoing call to Nisha at 3.32 p.m. for 2 minutes and 22 seconds from cell tower L651, the same tower as the last four calls. About 10 minutes after that, Jay's still freaking out, and he calls his friend Phil. He speaks with Phil for a minute and 25 seconds. Now, point of reference here, I think Phil is another person that wasn't looked into deeply enough, or at least not to my knowledge. I mean, after all, Jay called Phil... 10 minutes after he had just killed Hay. No doubt trying to find some help and some ideas on how to get rid of this body. Phil must know something. He gets off the phone with Phil, and he makes another call to his friend Patrick. But Patrick doesn't answer. It goes to voicemail. So Jay gets in the car, and he heads out to the only place where he's ever heard of bodies being dumped. Leakin Park. At 4.12 p.m., Jay arrives at Leakin Park. He's on the side of the road, and he doesn't quite know what to do. He calls his friend Jen at home again. We know this because at 4.12 p.m., there's a 28-second call to Jen that pings cell tower L689, the cell tower that covers Leakin Park. Jen doesn't answer, though, and it goes to voicemail. When there's a break in the traffic, Jay quickly scoops up Hay's body, carries her back into the woods just far enough that no one can see her from the road, and he throws her body down in some bushes. And there her body laid face down. It's broad daylight, so he quickly runs back out to the car, and he heads over to his friend Jen's house. As he's en route back to her house, Jen calls him at 4.27 p.m. He speaks with her for three minutes. We know this because there's an incoming call at 4.27 p.m. for two minutes and 56 seconds that ping cell tower L654, which is one of the towers that covers Jen's house. During that call, he tells Jen that she needs to quickly get into her car and follow him to the park and ride. Jen meets him there. Jay gets out of Hay's car, he gets into Jen's car, and they head back to Jen's house. Then at 4.58 p.m., track practice gets over. Adnan calls his cell phone to get a hold of Jay. Jay, while sitting at Jen's house, answers the phone. Adnan tells him he's done, come pick him up. We know this occurred because at 4.58 p.m., there's an incoming call that pings cell tower L654. Again, that's one of the towers that covers Jennifer Pusateri's home. About 10 minutes later, which is the correct amount of time to get out to a car and travel from Jen Pusateri's house to Woodlawn High School, Jay picks up Adnan in his own car. Adnan has no idea anything happened. He gets his cell phone, sees that he has several missed calls, and he calls and checks his voicemail. We know this because we can see on the call log at 5.14 p.m. that Adnan checked his voicemail. 
After checking his voicemail, he no doubt had some discussions with Jay, normal talk, everyday things they would normally talk about. At 5.38 p.m., he calls his friend Krista. For the next couple of hours, him and Jay drive around just like they both say they did. They go get some food. Adnan had been fasting all day. They find some remote locations where they can smoke weed. They cruise around and just have a normal afternoon. At around 8 o'clock, Adnan has to go to the mosque, so he needs to drop Jay off. Jay uses Adnan's phone to page Jen twice. We know this because we see a call to her pager number at 8.04 p.m. and another at 8.05 p.m. Adnan drops Jay off. He gets in the car with Jen, and they ride off. The rest of the evening, the phone is with Adnan, so it's pretty easy to see what he does. He goes to the mosque for a little while, brings his dad food. When he gets out of the mosque, of course, he calls his new gal, Nisha, at 9.01 p.m. They speak for a minute or so. When he gets off with her, he calls one of his best friends, Krista, at 9.03 p.m. They speak for about five minutes. Then the phones get disconnected. Cell service wasn't that great back in 1999. He calls Krista back. They keep talking for another eight minutes and 41 seconds. After they're done talking, Anand tries Nisha again, but she's not home. We know all these calls occurred shortly after he left the mosque because they all ping cell phone tower L651, which is the cell phone tower that covers the mosque. At 10 o'clock, he tries to call his friend Yasser, but there's no answer. By 10.30, he's home. He calls his friend Saad. No answer there either. And then at 10.30 p.m., he calls his friend Ann. They speak for about a minute and a half. We know these calls occurred at his home because they pinged cell tower L651, which is the tower that covers Adnan's home. While all of this is happening, Jay and Jen are sitting at Jen's house trying to devise a plan as to what to do with Heyman Lee's body. They decide that they're going to wait until late at night when there's no traffic. They're going to go back and retrieve her body from the woods where Jay had dumped her, and they're going to dig a grave in the same area and put her in it. Around midnight, they go out and they do just that. They very quickly dig a shallow grave, a ways off the woods where no one can see it from the road. They put her in the grave on her right side. They cover it up as best they can, throw some rocks in it, pretty hastily I might add. They go back to their car and they drive away. Now understand that the story I just told you may seem a little bit far-fetched, but the fact is my testimony does not stand alone. It is corroborated by the cell phone records. How could I possibly make up a story that fits every single call and every single tower location that was made from that cell phone on January 13, 1999? It's just not possible. My story is corroborated by the cell phone records, and Jay Wilds is guilty of the murder of Hay Min Lee. I hope that right now you're thinking, holy shit. There's no other good word for it, but holy shit. What I just did to you is exactly the same thing that Jay Wilds did to the jury in Adnan Syed's murder trial. Was my story completely fabricated? Honestly, I don't think so. I came to the idea of closing the show with this experiment during my research about my theory on the case, and that's pretty close to my theory on the case. But it's just a theory. It's just speculation. We need more to know for sure. But there's a bigger point. Adnan Syed has been sitting in prison for 15 years because two detectives and a prosecutor did the same thing that I just did. For those of you in the Adnan is guilty camp, that has to be a little bit of a hard pill to swallow right now. And whoever is the one that actually committed this heinous crime against a talented 18-year-old woman with her whole life ahead of her. We're going to find you. It's only a matter of time. Today's episode of The Serial Dynasty is funded by listeners like you. Your generous donations are helping to fund this project. The Serial Dynasty is also sponsored in part by Audible. To get your free audiobook, go to audibletrial.com slash serial dynasty. I want to thank each and every one of you for downloading this episode. Please continue to tell all of your friends. Share the Serial Dynasty podcast on social media. Please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. Send me your messages on Twitter at Serial Dynasty. And please let this movement continue by sending your theories to theories at serialdynasty.com. 
Don't forget to download the Undisclosed Podcast, episode number five, tomorrow at 6 p.m. And until next week, this has been The Serial Dynasty.